0: Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, former President Trump is not immune to prosecution. A D.C. appellate court made the ruling today related to the DOJ's January 6th charges against the former president. Our legal correspondent Arlene Richards breaks it down. President Biden blaming former President Trump for the expected collapse of the border bill being discussed in Congress now, what it means for the 2024 race, and what's next for Ukraine and Israel aid. Iris Tau in DC. Heavy rain breaks records in California. We have the latest on the major damage, death toll, and forecast. A verdict in the landmark trial for the Michigan high school shooter's mother. More about her charges and what will happen next. This evening, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas could face impeachment. Will Republicans have the votes as they head into the House chamber with a razor-thin majority? Democrats brushing it off as a political stunt. Melina Weiskup from Capitol Hill.
1: This is NTD Evening News, live. From our NTD Global Headquarters...
0: Good evening, and thank you for joining us tonight. A DC appeals court has ruled that former President Trump can be prosecuted for his alleged role in the events of January 6 2021. Trump argues that his actions were part of his official duties as president and that he is shielded from criminal liability. We turn now to NTD's legal correspondent, Arlene Richards for more details. Arlene, how did the court explain their decision?
2: So the court unanimously decided that Trump as a private citizen no longer had the immunity that he had when he was president, and therefore he was subject to the same criminal liability as any other individual. Now, looking at the written opinion of the court, they said, we have balanced former President Trump's asserted interest in executive immunity against the vital public interests that favor allowing this proceeding or prosecution to proceed. We conclude that concerns of public policy, especially as illuminated by our history and the structure of our government, compel the rejection of his claim of immunity in this case. They said that any immunity that he enjoyed as president no longer protects him from prosecution.
0: Hmm. And what is the impact of this decision on Trump's defense?
2: So this ruling has a major impact on his key defense in this case. Now, he has argued that the conduct that is in question here uh, was something that was done during his official duties as president and that he should be protected from any kind of criminal liability. In a statement, he said... Uh, If immunity is not granted to a president, the opposing party will indict every future president who leaves office. President Trump respectfully disagrees with the D.C. court's decision and will appeal it in order to safeguard the presidency and the Constitution. Now, President Trump has repeatedly warned that a decision like this would have dire implications for the office.
0: Now, Trump says he will now appeal this decision. Will he take it directly to the Supreme Court?
2: Well, he could uh, appeal it to the Supreme Court, or he could seek to have this reviewed by a full appellate court. Now, this case was decided by only three of the justices, but he does have the option to have the full court review it.
0: And now the trial was set for March, but was postponed a week ago. Will the lower court judge now put the case back on track?
2: Well, I think it's unlikely that Judge Tanya Chutkin will put this back on the calendar right away. Now, if Trump does decide to have this reviewed by a full appellate court, he will have to submit something called an embankment petition. And in that case, the appellate court will review it, and they will have to vote on it. And even if they reject it, they will take some time. Then Trump's team will likely appeal to the Supreme Court, which now has its hands full with stacks of cases, including election-related cases. So President Trump got the delay that he was seeking. We'll now have to see if Special Counsel Jack Smith will try to push it back onto the calendar. Well,
0: Arlene, thank you for that report. Thank you. A long-awaited border deal now collapsing in Congress that's prompting President Biden and former President Trump to blame the other over the border crisis. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more.
3: The border deal is falling apart as more and more Republican lawmakers say it's not going to fix our border. And President Biden on Tuesday blaming former President Trump, criticizing him for telling Republican lawmakers to vote against it.
4: He's not
1: interested in solving the border problem. He wants a political issue to run against me. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump.
3: The bipartisan bill, which came after months of painstaking negotiations, would give $60 billion to Ukraine and $14 billion to Israel. It would also shut down the border if more than 5,000 migrants cross the border every day. Trump on Monday said only a fool would vote for that, and some Senate Republicans on Tuesday saying that this bill would only make the border situation even worse.
5: We don't want to codify Biden's open-door policy. We don't want to hurt the next Republican uh, administration from their ability to secure the border, which is what Americans
0: want.
3: Biden, meanwhile, is also accusing Republicans of bailing on Ukraine by opposing this bill. But House Speaker Johnson says Biden's betraying another key ally of the US, and that is Israel, by threatening to veto a standalone bill that would only give funding to Israel.
1: As if we have no real chance here to make a law.
3: The Senate GOP leadership, while admitting on Tuesday that a current bill has no chance of becoming law, says the Senate might need to put together something different that focuses on the funding to Israel and Ukraine, but leaves out the border part, which is too controversial now. Meanwhile, President Biden says he's going to take more questions on this topic on Thursday, so it remains to be seen if Biden would actually concede to something different. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News.
0: The verdict is in a jury in Michigan today convicted the mother of the Oxford High School shooter on charges connected to the deaths of four students. 45 year old jennifer crumbly was found guilty of all four counts of involuntary manslaughter this was a first of its kind trial to determine whether the parents of teenage school shooters should be held responsible jennifer's son ethan crumbly shot and killed four students at his high school in november 2021 he was 15 at the time ethan's parents gifted him the handgun days before the shooting Prosecutors say the parents failed to properly secure the gun at home and failed to act on their son's mental health problems. During the trial, Jennifer Crumbly argued that it was her husband's job to keep track of the gun. The mother faces up to 60 years in jail. Her sentencing is on April 9th. Jennifer's husband, James Crumbly, faces trial on the same charges in March. Rainfall in Southern California has already broken records since the atmospheric river barreled into the region, causing major damage and flooding. NTD's Christina Corona gives us a weather update from Los Angeles.
6: This is one of the wettest storms in Southern California history that unfortunately led to home evacuations, hundreds of mudslides and the rescue of several individuals from rivers swollen by floods. Crews have responded to over 300 mudslides in addition to more than 100 reports of flooding and rescues of motorists stranded in vehicles on overflown roadways. Five buildings have been deemed unlivable since the atmospheric river arrived on Sunday.
7: An atmospheric river is a long tube of moisture in the atmosphere. Uh, It's vapor. It's uh, water, gas, not liquid. Um, It's Situated maybe three-ish miles above the ground, they are very long from roughly east to west, extending from the California coast all the way back into the tropics. So it's a sort of a, a transport system of water vapor coming from the tropics up to our coast atmospheric rivers are fairly common. What we need is for a storm to develop in the right place at the right time to soak up that moisture, to tap into it and rain out on top of us.
6: The storm had a major impact on the Inland Empire, where 10 people and 17 dogs were rescued. Rescuers with the Riverside Fire Department pulled four adults and a dog out of fast-moving waters in the Santa Ana River. Authorities reported that in Los Angeles County alone, 16 people and five cats were rescued. At least three people have died from falling trees in Northern California, and over 16 million people faced a high risk of heavy rain. Downtown Los Angeles had already received a record-breaking amount of rain, with more than half of its seasonal rainfall in just two days. For some parts of the region, rain total since the storm hit and into Tuesday morning neared 11 inches. These storms, commonly referred to as a Pineapple Express due to their origin in Hawaii, are atmospheric rivers that frequently impact the west coast of the U.S. and Canada. If we can go
7: through years of not having many atmospheric rivers in California, but they still are impacted in Oregon and Washington and British Columbia by them.
6: There's a chance of light showers on Wednesday, followed by sunny skies Thursday onwards, extending into next week. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles.
0: Israel and Hamas are still negotiating a hostage proposal, but a new report suggests there may be fewer hostages alive than previously thought. The report says at least 32 of the 136 hostages left in Gaza are dead. That's one in every five hostages. This comes from a confidential assessment by the Israeli military, reviewed by the New York Times. Israeli intelligence officers also told a paper they are assessing reports of at least 20 other hostages who may have been killed. During the October 7th attack, Hamas terrorists kidnapped over 250 hostages from Israel. Roughly 100 of them were freed in November. The Israeli military said most of the 32 hostages who died were killed on October 7th. The military previously confirmed that 29 hostages are dead. After the break, Melina Wisecup joins us live. She has the latest on the vote to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House lawmakers are just wrapping up. Artificial intelligence potentially able to censor information on a massive scale. Lawmakers express concerns over the many possibilities. Is flying still safe? The head of the FAA is answering that question and others today in his first congressional testimony. It comes after multiple dangerous aviation incidents in January. 70 New York public housing workers have been charged in connection with an alleged bribery scheme. Officials said the bust marks the DOJ's largest number of bribery charges in a single day. That's coming. Welcome back, I'm Tiffany Meyer. Lawmakers are deciding on impeaching DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. If passed, it would be the first impeachment of a cabinet official in almost 150 years today's Melina Wisecup joins us from Capitol Hill. Good evening, Melina. What are both sides of the aisle saying about this historic vote tonight?
4: Hi, Tiff. Good evening. Great to hear from you tonight. So the messaging that we've heard from both Republicans and Democrats throughout the day has been very clear and to the point. Republicans say they have grounds to impeach Mayorkas because they accuse him of not securing the border, saying that by not enforcing immigration laws, he himself has violated the law. Democrats, though, say Republicans are lacking evidence, accusing Republicans of undermining the Constitution. And they say that Republicans would not even be doing this if it weren't for them being uh, acting at the direction of former president trump now house speaker mike johnson the republican leader on the house side has said that he doesn't take imp- impeachment lightly and that he feels like he has no other choice at this point here's what lawmakers told us throughout the day leading up to tonight's vote
2: willfully defied existing federal statutes and laws and things that are incumbent upon him his duty under the under the, the laws of the country he refuses to enforce there is no there is no other measure for congress Uh, To take, but this one. It's an extreme measure. With no evidence, which is essentially basically on a simple disagreement on policy.
8: Uh, An impeachment effort, I should note, uh, that was demanded by Donald Trump and is being led by Marjorie Taylor Greene. What does this impeachment effort have to do with fixing the challenges at the border? We're making a statement that somebody's not doing their job. One of the most important jobs in the United States government is. To protect our sovereignty, child trafficking in the tens of thousands, people dying by the hundreds of thousands from fentanyl.
4: Now leading up to tonight's vote, Tiff, Republicans have been pushing the message that there has been an uh, unprecedented amount of illegal crossings since President Biden took office, but the DHS has pushed back saying that no other administration has been able to obtain operational control of the border either. Tiff.
0: And Melina, as we're waiting to see those results tonight, Republicans are heading into this vote already having lost the support from a few in their own ranks. Is there a possibility this could fail?
4: Yeah, Tiff, so we're waiting to see those results. Just moments from now, they'll be taking the vote on this, and it is a very real possibility that it could fail. We asked Republicans how they feel about heading into tonight's vote. On such shaky ground, they said that they were not concerned to let the chips fall where they may because they still feel an obligation to send a message with this vote. Now, we know of at least two Republicans who are opposed to this, meaning with Republicans' slim majority, they cannot afford to lose even one more vote. Of those who are opposed, they say that Republicans are really undermining the Constitution here. They also worry that under a next Republican-controlled executive branch, they could be vulnerable to a Democrat-controlled Congress. Listen to this.
3: There'll be nobody there to stop them because we will have been complicit in redefining the, the fundamental definition of impeachment.
4: Now, as we said, we're eagerly awaiting this result tonight, considering it is up in the air where Republicans stand as a whole on this. But, Tiff, even if Mayorkas is impeached here in the House, it's highly unlikely that he will be impeached in the Democrat-controlled
0: Senate. Tiff, back to you. Melina, thank you for that update. Nikki Haley has applied for Secret Service protection following threats on the campaign trail. It's unclear when the former South Carolina governor made the request. She's had a visibly heightened security presence with her for about a week. There were reports of two swatting incidents in recent months at Haley's home in South Carolina, one of which occurred while her parents were there. Swatting is when someone makes a hoax call to emergency services to dispatch a large number of armed police officers to a specific location. The Secret Service provides protection only after it's authorized by the Secretary of Homeland Security, who consults with a congressional advisory committee. In May 2007, then-Senator Barack Obama was placed under protection given the rising number of threats against him. Lawmakers are concerned over the government's potential use of artificial intelligence for mass censorship. There's a range of possibilities for how AI could control and influence information. NTD's Jack Bradley has more.
8: The ability to speak is fundamental to how we do things in this great country. And if we lose that, oh my goodness.
5: Lawmakers are expressing concerns over how the government could potentially use artificial intelligence to mass censor speech. Pointing out that the Biden administration is already censoring speech using tools that are currently available. Artificial intelligence introduces a new dimension, offering the unprecedented ability to monitor, to flag, and to censor billions of individuals at a scale and scope never before conceivable. Investigative journalist Lee Fong says both the public and private sectors are working on censorship. For example, AI firm Logically, which allegedly suppressed information during the COVID lockdowns. Logically has discussed uh, a proposal to automatically counter hate speech or misinformation with AI to kind of engage bots to algorithmically argue on the Internet on behalf of the government. Reporter Caitlin Richardson says the government is advancing censorship tools by giving money to private companies. She discovered this when she was investigating the National Science Foundation, a government agency.
4: What I discovered was a multi-million dollar effort to build what I call a censorship industrial complex, using taxpayer dollars as seed funding for various projects. The efforts fit within the broader trend of the federal government's increasing involvement in online censorship.
5: Richardson says the agency is giving researchers hundreds of thousands in tax money to create tools that warn journalists if their content is spreading what it calls false narratives that help journalists locate and correct what it considers misinformation and that locate the original source of what it considers misinformation. She says the National Science Foundation gave $324,000 to a summer camp at Old Dominion University to teach students about the rapidly growing research area of disinformation disinformation detection and analytics.
4: The goal is to prepare students for future disinformation-related jobs, an indicator this is a growing industry.
5: Richardson says she believes the government is not the arbiter of truth. She says pursuing information control by funding outside organizations is a threat to free speech. Jack Bradley, NTD News.
0: Is air travel still safe? Some are questioning the state of American aviation after a series of dangerous incidents in recent months. Today, Congress held a hearing to try and get some answers. Here was the FAA chief.
5: Let me stress, the safety of the flying public is our mission.
1: On Tuesday, Federal Aviation Administration Administrator Michael Whitaker testified before Congress for the first time. This after multiple dangerous aviation accidents in January. This footage shows an early January incident during which a door plug was blown out of a Boeing 737 operated by Alaska Airlines. On Tuesday afternoon, the National Transportation Safety Board released the first preliminary report on the door plug that blew off It found that the Boeing 737 was missing four key bolts from the door plug. Another situation making headlines in January was a cargo plane that caught fire. This clip shows the Boeing 747, which had to turn around for an emergency landing shortly after takeoff from Miami. Whitaker told lawmakers on Tuesday that the FAA will have more production checks from now on. Going forward, we will have more boots on the ground, closely
5: scrutinizing and monitoring production and manufacturing activities. Boeing employees are encouraged to use our FAA hotline to report any safety concerns.
1: He added that he'll further improve safety by taking three steps. Those are monitoring significant safety events, hiring more air traffic control personnel, and ensuring continuous safety improvement. Some Republicans at the hearing asked about airports across the U.S., housing illegal immigrants. These are unvetted illegal foreign nationals. How does that promote safety or utility or efficiency in these
5: airports? I think you're out of my area of expertise. I'm not familiar with that circumstance.
1: I think that answers the question. Some of the cities which are or have been housing illegal immigrants at airports are Boston, Chicago, and New York City.
0: Violent crime in Oakland, California is on the rise. In response, Governor Gavin Newsom is deploying 120 Highway Patrol officers to the area. The operation announced today aims to crack down on vehicle and retail theft as well as violent crime. Police data show that car theft jumped 44% last year in Oakland, robberies rose 38% and burglaries increased 23%. As part of the operation, the California Highway Patrol will utilize canines in air support. The news comes as popular restaurant chain In-N-Out is closing its Oakland location, the first of its restaurants to close. The owner cited excessive car break-ins, theft and armed robberies as reasons for closing. Denny's is also closing its Oakland location for similar reasons. Other longtime Oakland businesses like Kaiser Permanente and Clorox reported an increase in concern for the safety of their employees, even going as far as hiring security guards to escort staff out of the office. Federal authorities have arrested dozens of current and former New York City public housing workers. A total of 70 suspects were charged with demanding kickbacks from contractors in exchange for building repairs. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said the bust marks the DOJ's largest number of bribery charges ever in a single day.
8: The red dots signify the buildings where we realize that a superintendent or an assistant superintendent RECEIVED OR DEMANDED CASH BRIBES. THERE ARE NEARLY 100 DOTS ON THIS, on this, uh, this BOARD RIGHT HERE. AND THAT'S NEARLY ONE-THIRD OF ALL NYCHA DEVELOPMENTS THAT WE ALLEGE WERE INVOLVED IN SOME OF THIS CORRUPTION.
0: THE NEW YORK CITY HOUSING AUTHORITY, OTHERWISE KNOWN AS NYCHA, IS THE LARGEST HOUSING AGENCY IN NORTH AMERICA. THE ALLEGED bribery SCHEMES INVOLVE CONSTRUCTION, MAINTENANCE AND NO-BID CONTRACTS FOR ESSENTIAL SERVICES SUCH AS PLUMBING, Federal prosecutors said the 70 suspects extorted a total of $2 million from contractors between 2013 and 2023. Officials encouraged contractors to speak out against any corruption happening with within NYCHA, adding that they have already done so. Coming up, what would the border deal actually do? Our guest says it would create an incentive to reduce illegal immigration. Hear his analysis of the bill's content. Did the White House pressure Amazon to censor books related to COVID-19 vaccines? A Republican Congressman says it did. See the internal communication he provided to make his case when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. A U.S. appeals court in D.C. ruled that former President Trump is not immune to prosecution over the events of January 6, 2021. Trump said he disagrees with the court's decision and will appeal. An atmospheric river caused record-breaking rain in Southern California. Crews rescued dozens of residents as over 16 million people faced a threat of heavy rains. The Oxford High School shooters mother Jennifer Crumbly was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. She was the first parent to be convicted in connection with the deaths caused by a teenage school shooter. The house is currently voting to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This would be the first time a cabinet member is impeached since the 1870s, but it's faced pushback from Republicans as well as Democrats. President Biden and former President Trump blamed each other for the collapse of the border deal. Biden blamed Trump for telling GOP lawmakers to vote against the deal. And Trump blamed Biden, saying he created the border crisis in the first place. As Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell retreats on the border deal, it's clear the deal is dead on arrival. Yet there are different interpretations of the bill's effectiveness and even widely divergent views among Republicans. Here to speak with us is Daniel DiMartino. He's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a Ph.D. candidate in economics at Columbia University. Daniel DiMartino, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me, Tiffany. To begin, some are calling this bipartisan Senate border deal the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades. Now, you're actually studying immigration. What's your view of this bill?
9: Yeah, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about what the deal actually does or doesn't do. Um, Let's understand what's the situation now at the border. Biden is simply allowing in people and giving them court dates as soon as they show up on the border, because they're claiming asylum. Because there are so many of them, they can't even be interviewed to see if their claims are credible at all. What this bill does is that they actually mandate that Biden detains every immigrant and gives the resources to actually detain them uh, for, for at least 90 days, and then interviews them in that time frame. Uh, and then is that they're released only if they pass that interview. Among those who are released, not the people who are immediately deported with frivolous claims, those people are going to have their asylum cases decided within a further 90 days, which is would be a record, right? Uh, because right now, it's taking five to 10 years to decide an asylum case. And that's how why all these people are coming to the border. So definitely, this bill fixes that root cause of why we have so many people coming to the southern border.
0: On that note, how would that change in the timeline, change the incentive for these people who are coming to the states?
9: Well, you know, what's happening now is that they know that if they turn themselves into Border Patrol, they will be given a court date, five years in in the future, maybe. And in that time frame, they can live and work legally in the United States. And so we are basically handing out already right now work visas to anybody who shows up at the southern border for five years. Um, even if they have a false asylum claim, because we simply do not have the resources to vet them. This bill allocates those resources to actually do that and deport the people without real asylum claims. Um, I think a a big sticking point in this discussion has been this 5,000 number a day that that everybody's talking about, that they're saying that the bill will let in 5,000 illegal immigrants a day. Well, let's talk about what's happening now. They're letting in 10,000 illegal immigrants a day right now. Um, The 5,000 number is not people who are let in, it's people who are arrested and detained, most of whom are deported because they won't pass the credibility screening. And then what's happening is that if the border actually sees more than 5,000 people show up, they're just going to shut it down in that nobody can even claim asylum. Now some people are saying, why don't we shut it down already? Why don't we shut it down at 1,000? Why don't we shut it down at one? Why should anybody be allowed through? And I think that's a fair point, but the reality is that the the president can't do that right now. Not even Trump did that. In 2019, Trump was letting in, you know, hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants when we were at the peak of the border crisis. And people forgot because the president doesn't have the legal tools to actually shut the border down. And that's why we need legislative action.
0: On that note, Texas's Governor Greg Abbott is saying that President Biden already has the tools needed to secure the border today without even this bill. Others are saying this bill is about changing the legislation about asylum or the incentive for those who are coming to the states, not just building a wall. What is your understanding of that?
9: Yeah, I mean, look, the the fact is that if Republicans didn't believe that we needed to change the law, then why did they sponsor H.R. 2, which was a border bill? Because we do need to change the law. Now we can talk about how we need to change the law. But if we do not change the law, if Congress does not act, we will continue having people showing up illegally at the border, and they will be let through because they're claiming asylum, and we can't vet them because we don't have enough judges and resources. So this is really a logistical issue to deport them. Also, how are we going to deport people under under any of these Republican proposals? Deporting people costs money. We we need to pay for their flights to to be sent back. This bill does all of that. They allocate all the money for these deportations, for even arrests of migrants inside the United States. It's a completely different system that I think would drastically reduce illegal immigration.
0: Now, you mentioned at the beginning there's a lot of misinformation around this bill. Now, this bill is getting a lot of bipartisan pushback. House Speaker Mike Johnson is saying this is dead on arrival in the House. Senators Florida Senator Rick Scott is saying this isn't border security, it's surrender. What do you see as the reasons behind the polar views on this bill?
9: Well, look, you know, I think it's obvious that this is um, an issue that I think both parties have some incentive to want it to continue. You know, you see it on the left, where the ACLU opposes this bill. All the immigrant rights groups oppose this bill. So, that's something that conservatives need to think. Why do the immigrant rights groups oppose this bill if it's supposedly a surrender? Because it is not a surrender. It's the harshest border bill we will ever get Democrats to vote for. And if people think that, when a Republican president comes to office, we're going to be able to pass this thing, we are not, because the Democrats are not going to cooperate after November. So, I think we're in a really good spot where conservatives can get Democrats to pass really tough border security bills that we won't be able to in the future if we don't take this chance. Um, you know, they're saying things like this bill has amnesty. That's false. Nobody will be legalized by this bill. This is just made up. There I've heard that this bill supposedly gives work visas to illegal immigrants the border, that's false. That's something we're already doing. So this will actually ends that. Uh, and, and so I'm just asking people to have a, you know, disagreements and debates about provisions that are actually in the text.
0: Daniel DiMartino, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Congressman Jim Jordan says Amazon caved into pressure from the White House to censor books related to COVID-19 vaccines in early 2021. That's according to new emails obtained by subpoena. NTD's Daniel Wanahan has more on the allegations.
8: Congressman Jim Jordan says internal Amazon documents were obtained through subpoena by the House Judiciary Committee and the Government Weaponization Subcommittee. Jordan dubbed the internal Amazon documents the Amazon Files. He says the never-before-released internal emails reveal that the Biden White House pressured Amazon to censor books that expressed views the administration did not approve of. The congressman shared email communication where an Amazon official asks, Is the Biden administration asking us to remove books? Jordan wrote on X that Andy Slavitt, a former White House senior advisor for COVID response, was pressuring Amazon at the same time. The congressman says Slavid wrote an email in March 2021, demanding to know who he and his White House colleagues could talk to at the company about the high levels of propaganda and misinformation and disinformation of Amazon. According to Jordan, the White House ran keyword searches for controversial topics such as vaccine to conclude that there was propaganda and misinformation in books sold in Amazon's bookstore, and then emailed Amazon when it didn't like how the search results appeared. Jordan says Amazon decided to hold off on doing a manual intervention to censor books at first, not out of any commitment to free speech, but because doing so would be too visible to the American public and likely to spur criticism from conservative media. Jordan wrote that Amazon originally resisted the White House pressure, The company argued that retailers are different than social media communities and that Amazon provides customers with access to a variety of viewpoints, adding that its company guidelines do not specifically address content about vaccines. But eventually, the company implemented a do not promote directive on so-called anti-vax books on the same day Amazon representatives met with the White House. In March, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a case initiated by attorneys general from Missouri and Louisiana. They alleged that the Biden administration collaborated with social media firms to stifle freedom of speech concerning the COVID 19 pandemic. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: In a first and exclusive interview with NTD, Jesse Browdy, a principal dancer of Shen Performing Arts, tells NTD Good Morning about life as a dancer for the world renowned classical Chinese dance company. What was the training process like and how did classical Chinese dance become his career of choice? NTD's Evelyn Lee also speaks with his father, who recalls the difficult decision to send his then teenage son away to school and how he knew it was the right choice. Watch the full interview exclusively on NTD Good Morning tomorrow at 7 a.m. Eastern time. Coming up, another whistleblower speaking out about gender transition for minors. Our guest says those struggling with gender issues often have underlying mental health problems. Hear more of his analysis. And in college basketball, a ruling that could have a far reaching impact as Dartmouth's players are now one step closer to unionizing. Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer, a therapist in Washington state is blowing the whistle about gender transition procedures for minors. Tamara Pitsky gave whistleblower testimony to the Free Press. She said her bosses told her to throw out her training and give so-called gender affirming care to an abused autistic and even suicidal 13 year old. She said the girl was suffering from physical and mental abuse as well as anxiety and depression. But supervisors at the Mary Bridge Children's Gender Health Clinic pushed a therapist to sign off on requests for puberty blockers and gender transition surgeries. Pietzke admitted that she was terrified to speak out, but said that fear pales in comparison to my strong belief that we can no longer medicalize youth and cause them potentially irreversible harm. Joining us now to discuss gender transition for minors and the mental health issues that many of the patients go through, we have Colin Wright. He's an evolutionary biologist and founding editor of Reality's Last Stand. Cool. Colin Wright, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show.
10: Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you.
0: Now, given testimony from whistleblowers like Tamara Pitske and detransitioners, how common is this practice of rushing to put a patient on cross-sex hormones or hormone blockers before addressing, say, underlying mental health issues, abuse, or trauma, if those are even addressed at all?
10: Yeah, it's it's an extremely common thing that's happening at Many gender clinics across the United States. There was uh, data that was published in Reuters that you know had this on the order of of hundreds of thousands of individuals that are being put on this pathway. Uh, and you know this starts from just when they merely utter the word gender or com- claim to have confusion about their gender, they're then put to a gender clinic. And then once they're there, it's really just sort of like this conveyor belt down this uh, this pathway that can lead to permanent uh, medical interventions
0: and while the data is limited how common is it for those suffering from say gender dysphoria to be victims of abuse or be suffering some form of other trauma or even mental illness
10: it's extremely common i mean there are there's evidence to su- suggest that the vast majority of kids who come out with gender issues are somewhere on the autism spectrum the majority have a history of you know it can be sexual abuse, but definitely other mental health issues, uh, things like anxiety and other traumas in their life. Uh, and these are often swept under the rug. In fact, uh, in a, a recent whistleblower case, the, the people who were supposed to be in charge of you know, putting out safeguards for these individuals said that these pre-existing types of mental health conditions should not act as a as an impediment to being transitioned and put on these life-altering hormones
0: and what seems to be the correlation if there is one between say trauma abuse and gender dysphoria
10: it's extremely tight link um, well over 50% have this some association with trauma or mental health issues um, it's 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 quite the majority usually gender dysphoria comes about uh, because of these pre-existing issues these pre-existing mental health conditions uh, but then you know, once they utter the word gender, suddenly their entire diagnostic criteria that the doctors are using is viewed through the lens of gender dysphoria, where they think, oh, if we just treat gender dysphoria, then we'll alleviate all of these other comorbid mental health issues, when in reality, it's the other way around.
0: Hmm. Now, the New York Times published an op-ed that highlights the stories of several detransitioners. It's also calling for an honest debate around the dangers of, quote-unquote, gender-affirming care for youth. Now, how significant is this piece?
10: This is a huge Significant piece. There have been detransitioners trying to get their stories in large outlets uh, for since since detransitioners have existed. Uh, right wing outlets have been the only outlets that have been willing to even listen to them because it goes against sort of this progressive narrative about trans kids and the benefits of gender affirming care. Uh, and you know they like to say that detransitioners are extremely rare or that no one ever regrets this. Finally, we have a piece that highlights very specific examples of medical malpractice taking place in this area of gender care, and I'm I'm thankful it's here because, uh, you know, we've been trying to get an article like this in such a high-profile, left-leaning newspaper for many
0: years. And why do you think there is that silence, especially from the more progressive left media?
10: The silence is the result of them being afraid of their base to some degree. I mean, I. Uh, felt silenced when I was in academia. I used to be an academic biologist. And then I started talking about why there's only two sexes, uh, and I faced an immediate ostracization from from my colleagues. And many other people feel the same way. Um, and so often they just either don't touch the issue at all, uh, or they just really use it. They use uh, very severe, like culture war terms uh, when they do this. They they don't take an honest look because they get such backlash whenever they touch this topic in a in a journalistic manner.
0: Colin Wright, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. Some breaking news. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas just narrowly escaped impeachment. The House vote was extremely close. It was just four Republicans voting against impeaching him. Moving on to sports, the American Gaming Association says nearly 68 million Americans plan to bet on this year's Super Bowl. Betting participation is projected to be 35% higher than last year, setting a new record. Betters plan to wager an estimated $23.1 billion on this year's Super Bowl. That's up from $16 billion last year. The projection accounts for both legal and illegal sports betting. Sports betting is legal in 38 states plus Washington, D.C. About 73% of adults say they plan to watch the game this year. 47% of bettors plan to bet on the Kansas City Chiefs. And now, for more sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, some possible groundbreaking news in college basketball as Dartmouth's players are closer to becoming employees of the school. Where do things stand now?
1: Yeah, the players actually voted to unionize all the way back in September. But yesterday, a regional official for the National Labor Relations Board ruled that the players are employees of the school. That clears the way for a national union vote to be held. Now, the school does have a right to appeal that decision. They previously argued that players shouldn't be considered employees, seeing that athletics are part of the academic mission of the school, much like performing in the orchestra. Now, should the players indeed join join a union, they would be able to negotiate salary as well as working conditions, you know, like travel and even like practice hours. Now, it's important to note that Dartmouth players, like all Ivy League players, do not receive athletic scholarships, though the school has argued that the program loses money as it is.
0: Now, this has been a rising issue in college athletics. What's the NCAA's position on all this?
1: Yeah, pretty much the same as Dartmouth. Steadfasting in insisting that these players are students, not employees. I'm sure part of the reason the NCAA relented and allowed these student athletes to finally make money off their name, image, likeness, probably was in the hopes it would squash this employee conversation. I think for the schools, their their position becomes, you know, where does it end? Do band members become employees as well? And then what are the implications of this? Can high school athletes unionize too? There's a lot of questions it raises. Now, it's also important to note that the NCAA has a relatively new president in Charlie Baker, who's already floated the ideas of the school, these big revenue schools, like in the power conferences, paying their athletes a stipend anyway. But those schools will mainly just be in those power conferences. The Ivy League is not one of those. In any case, the NCAA's whole amateur model really really is starting to crumble.
0: Well now, shifting gears to the NFL, a popular comparison is being made between Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes and seven-time Super Bowl winner Tom Brady. How do they compare at similar stages of their
6: careers?
1: Yeah, there's actually a fair amount of similarities. Both of them sat on the bench as rookies and then really took off as starters. Brady led the Patriots to Super Bowl wins in three of his first four seasons as a starter, then went 10 years before winning his fourth, and then he got four in a seven-year period from 2014 to 2020. Now, if Mahomes leads the Chiefs to a win Sunday, they'll be the first repeat as champs since Brady's Patriots did two decades ago, and Mahomes will equal Brady with three Super Bowl wins through six seasons as a starter. Now, a few, though, have had a good second half of their career like Brady did, though. He was almost more of a game one manager quarterback until the team got Randy Moss in 2007. Then his numbers took off. That's when he won his first MVP award. But let's remember, he played until he was 45 years old. Very rare. And he was at a high level, too. Most quarterbacks start to decline in their mid-30s. Now, Mahomes is 28, but he's definitely off to a good start.
0: Looking at the NHL tonight, the Edmonton Oilers could equal the longest win streak ever should they beat Las Vegas. Now, the Oilers started slow this year. What's turned around for them?
1: Well, for one thing, they fired their former head coach, Jay Woodcroft, in November after a 3-9-1 start. Chris Knoblog then took over. They've gone 26-6 and since. Certainly having reigning MVP Connor McDavid on your team helps, you know, but their defense has really been at the heart of the streak. They've allowed two goals or less in now 14 straight games. That's a franchise record. They've actually become the betting favorites to win the Stanley Cup, according to ESPN Bet. Now, the playoffs don't start until April, but if they did win, they'd be the first Canadian franchise to do so since Montreal did in 1993.
0: Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.